Hello, and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I'll be looking at a piece of HP Lovecraft's writings, his stories, his letters, his uh, nonfiction writings, some of his poetry, whatever I can get a hand on and my hands on and, and find worthy to, to talk about. But certainly we'll be looking at all the stories. And um, today that brings us to the unnameable. Uh, the unnameable f- uh, was first published in Weird Tales in July of 1925. It was written in September of 1923. This is a time period, by the way, where Lovecraft was writing a lot of really great and memorable and important stories like The Hound, uh, The Festival, The Shunned House, Lurking Fear, The Rats on the Wall. It's a really uh, prodigious period of Lovecraft's writings. Um, You know, a lot of the stories we've been looking at are, are interesting and important, but they're not necessarily like core i guess to the the casual lovecraft reader they're not always as often anthologized but uh these stories start to you know really become more core to his to his kind of what why we remember lovecraft so so fondly and why we still read his stories and why there's a a a thousand different podcasts like like this one um but anyways uh the unnameable um This is a, it's, it's barely a story, actually. It, it, it's kind of like a, a conversation, a debate. I mean, and that's how the story is sort of framed, at least in the first two thirds of it, as a debate between two friends about the nature of the supernatural and the nature of literature. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's really fun because it does really explore some of these, uh, like a debate that I think is going on within Lovecraft at this time, right? Whether you should name it and identify and describe the horror or should you uh, leave it unnameable or, or can it be are there horrors out there that cannot be named is there an element of terror that's beyond our our senses um and in this story he comes to the conclusion that, that yes there are things that are unnameable um but in other stories you know especially ones he starts writing after 1923 1924 uh we start to see it being named we start to see it described and, and some of his longer tales really are so long because they include very detailed descriptions of, of these monsters, of these creatures, um, you know, of, of rituals, of beliefs, of traditions, you know, and that, that it kind of leads to this expanding bulk in his stories, which I love. I adore that stuff. You know, I, I sometimes I'm not as comfortable with this unnameable, the kind of stuff we see in the music of Eric Zahn, for instance. Or the kind of thing we see in What the Moon Brings, uh, or The Nameless City, where everything's a little bit vaguer and, and fuzzier. Um, but nevertheless, I think this is a great exploration of this question. And, and if someone wanted to just have a nice introduction to this, it's if they don't want to read like supernatural horror literature, uh, and you wanted to introduce them to it in a shorter work, I would say go to the unnameable, you know, presented not as a horror story so much, but rather, rather as a conversation about about this um so our main characters there's only two characters in this story joel manton who's a principal of a high school in from boston in new england i think they're in arkham yeah they're in arkham at the time so he's the principal of the high school at arkham i guess even though he's from boston so he's of new england blood and the other is carter uh i guess our randolph carter the last time we met him he was in florida presumably although you know, I'm not sure we can really clearly identify the location of the statement of Randolph Carter, but 
The best, I guess, answer is Florida. <clears throat> and, and now he's in New England. In fact, it's clear that this guy's not from New England because at one point he says, you know, I'm going to, you know, use this guy's locality as a tool to, to kind of make my case, make my argument. So it's not his. He's not using his own place. So he's not from New England. And then, of course, we're going to meet Randolph Carter in The Silver Key and in The Green Quest of the Unknown Kadath. So most people see Carter as just the, the Lovecraft stand-in. So he's not really a character with a history and a continuity between the stories. It's just if you need a character who's going to be the stand-in for Lovecraft, he's it. The problem with that is I think there are many characters that sort of fit that bill and, and, and you know, can fit in for Lovecraft. But, um, yeah, uh, so let's, let's, let's jump into this a little bit. Um, so as the story begins, our two characters are in an old cemetery in Arkham talking about the unnameable. Now, as kind of ghoulish and creepy as this is, I don't think it's that bizarre. I mean, I've been to old New England graveyards. You know, some of them have become like basically tourist attractions. Um, if you're in New England, there are these old burial sites that go back to the 17th century. So why wouldn't you kind of explore them and, and hang out there and have a few beers in a late afternoon? You know, the, the issue is that this story takes place from the late afternoon to the evening of, of a particular day. So it gets dark and then it kind of changes the nature of their conversation and it leads it into a, a, a true story about the supernatural. Um, and what conversation are these two having? Well, they're talking about uh, corpses feeding trees. Now, this is a very, very old cemetery, like from this, it's like one of these 17th century cemeteries. And Manton, the friend, says, there's no way that there's any nutrients from the bodies that can still be feeding these trees. So get that out of your head. It's nonsense. And Carter's like, no, I, I sort of want to imagine that, that there's this spectral and undimensionable nourishment some kind of spiritual nourishment that's coming from uh, the graveyards, these sepulchers feeding these trees that maybe have been there for, for hundreds of years or whatever. <clears throat> um, and then this leads into the big debate between these two characters, right? And that is basically Man Manton's view is we're basically limited by our five senses. And so there's nothing that's really in theoretically unnameable right there's maybe things we can't see or experience but then we would never experience it so they couldn't be a source of horror for us if we can experience if it can cause us fear we can experience it and see it and know it right because it's through our five senses and you know maybe not everyone can describe everything they see with their five senses like maybe some people who don't have a good palate have trouble describing food the taste of food or some people maybe have trouble describing the smell of things. Uh, but if you can see something, most people push can give a description of it. So I'm sorry, some people are better at it than others. Some people are better at seeing and observing, but that's not the point. The point is if it can be observed, it can in theory be described and therefore it can't be unnameable, right? And Carter's view, and he's a writer, and he's a writer of pulp horror fiction, very much like Lovecraft himself, he says, no, there is these unnameable things. In fact, he's kind of built his career, his fame, his notoriety as a writer on exploiting the fear of the unknown and the unnameable. So then we're introduced to Manton directly. In the first paragraph, he's just mentioned as a friend. <clears throat> he's, met, he's named directly Joel Manton. Um, and we get more about his background. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of a subtle 
different uh, distinction in Manton's own mind. I think he's very conventional. I think he's, <coughs> in most things, uh, a basically a materialist and a believer in kind of what you see is what you get, right? But he still holds to kind of beliefs in some kind of supernatural. And I, I think the, hint, the suggestion here is religious. There's a lot of religious suggestions here. For instance, in the first paragraph, uh, Manton is described as refusing to... Uh, refer to any object that, quote, cannot be clearly depicted by the solid definitions or facts or the correct doctrines of theology, end quote. So although it's not directly stated he's basically a religious person, he is. He's a religious person. He's a New, Eng he's a New England congregationalist. And so he holds to the supernatural to some degree, to some token. Um, but he doesn't think, like, horror fiction is the proper way to explore that. You know, that, that's a little bit too lured for him. He says, he objects to his, quote, preoccupation with the mystical and the unexplained. For although believing in the supernatural must fully, much more fully than I, he would not admit that it's sufficiently commonplace for literary treatment. So he's the kind of person who thinks, yeah, there's supernatural elements in the Bible, in God's kind of workings in the world, but it doesn't really affect our, our universe. He's more like a Protestant rationalist, I guess, in his perspective on these types of things. Manton's other problem with this type of literature that Carter's writing is that it's essentially escapist. Um, and it kind of takes us out of, of, of what is, what really should be studied and really should be the source of, of literature, you know, logic, morality, or whatever. And this is all themes he explores in a lot of detail in supernatural horror in literature, which was written around this time. I mean, it wasn't, that is a 1920s text. It's not like something he wrote at the end of his career. He wrote it when he was still, before he even produced some of his greatest and, and most well-known works. Um, but he still comes down to it that nothing can really truly be unnameable, right? And if your perspective is largely religious, it sort of has to be that way. Because if you're religious, you have to believe in the supernatural. But you can't believe in that supernatural as somehow unattainable or unknowable. Because then that undermines your whole Christian theology, which is God's revealing himself to humanity through supernatural events. And if those events are not known to us, can't be known to us, then it's like God's not really communicating to us in a meaningful way, right? So I, I think his perspective, although not clearly stated, is fundamentally one of a, of, of a, of a conventional standard, uh, more or less rational Protestant. So Carter writes that he, he just sort of wants to give up. He does not really that interested in having these conversations with Manton anymore. He's had it too many times. But he says, you know, he's kind of moved by being in this graveyard to kind of push, push Manton's buttons a little bit. He says, like, well, since we're here, and the, descri the description of the place is great. Uh, the crumbling stone slabs, the patriarchal trees, and the century gambrel roofs of the witch-haunted old town that stretched around, all combined to rouse my spirit in defense of my work, and I'll soon carry my thrust into the enemy's own country, end quote. So that's how we know that this Carter is not of New England. This Carter is, maybe he's of Florida. Maybe that's where he got to start, and then he moved on to New England. We'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll keep our eyes on, on Randolph Carter when we see him again. Um, so uh, the next, uh, so he goes on here and, and talks about, how Manton actually believes in all sorts of New England superstitions, old wives' tales, even perhaps believing in ghosts um, and, and the presence of ghosts. But, and Carter says, well, so if you believe in that stuff, you sort of have to 
believe in some kind of quote spectral substance that's that's uh, beyond material counter you know components. <clears throat> and Manton's perspective is sure, but if those things exist, I can observe. I can still describe them, right? If I see a ghost or I see a ghost face in the wind, you know, or whatever, it's still fully within my capacity as a rational human being to give it some to describe it. It's not unnameable. I, I just named it. It's a ghost, right? It's not that that hard. We all sort of know what a ghost is. It's in our common kind of linguistic uh, milieu, right? And, and we all have an idea of what a ghost is. So you can't say a ghost is an unnameable. If I, if I, I don't believe in ghosts, but if I saw one, I could say, wow, that, that's a ghost, right? And Carter's response to this is, well, yeah, you can approach it with common sense. That's fine, but that's, quote, a stupid absence of imagination and mental flexibility. It's a bit rude. It's a bit. It's a bit mean. It's a bit of a mean way to go about it. But you know, it, I, I can kind of see Carter's point. He's saying that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about if you, if a werewolf jumps out. You could, you know, werewolf is not supernatural if it exists. It, it's, it would be within the natural logic. Same thing of a ghost if you can see it. It's somehow within our realm of consciousness. Right? I can observe it. Maybe even interact with it to some degree. However, you know, he's talking about something different. He's talking about the in his supernatural, his unnameable is beyond that. And for that, it requires a certain degree of imagination and uh, quote, mental flexibility. This is exactly the argument he makes in supernatural horror and literature when he says only sufficiently sensitive people can actually appreciate this stuff. Most people aren't going to really appreciate it. Bit of an at least take on it, but I think to some degree there's some truth to it. So, you know what this story's missing? And I love Crash would never add it because he was a teetotaler. They really need beers. These guys, if you're sitting talking about the supernatural in a graveyard, you know, you need beers. I, I'm sorry, Lovecraft. You're teetotaling. It's fine and dandy. That's who you are. But come on. This, this, you're missing out on something. They really need beers to, to, to add to the, the feeling here. Um, but anyways, apparently their conversation was riveting enough that they didn't need beer. Or they didn't need whiskey or whatever. So they're sitting out there on this nice day and it, their conversation goes long enough that it starts to become dark. Dusk falls and it starts to get um, dark and then you start to see lights appearing in some of the buildings, right? So as it gets dark, of course, people turn on their electricity or their oil lamps or whatever in their houses. Not all the houses get lit up though and that really has a great effect here where there's one building that, that remains dark because it's an old ancient building that no one lives in. He writes, there in the dark upon the river tomb by the deserted house. Uh, oh, no, sorry, I, I went too far. The utter blackness of the spot brought by our intervention in a tottering, deserted 17th century house between us and the nearest lighted road. It's a really great effect, and I think this would it'd be, nice for, it'd be nice for a picture, I think. Um, now, nevertheless, he's still sort of, they're still scoffing each other, scoffing at each other's ideas. But he's like, okay, I'm going to tell you a story now. And this story, this is going to convince you or whatever. So uh, he's going to tell a story, and this is actually a, a real story that he apparently based his uh, a 1922 story called The Attic Window that was published in a journal called Whispers. This is not a real journal at the time. Later on, apparently someone created this journal in the 70s using this name, getting it from the Lovecraft story. But at the time, it was just it was just like weird tales. It's equivalent of weird, weird tales at the time, right? And he says, you know, this was popular across the country. You know, they couldn't keep it on the newsstands. But in New England, people didn't write it. They didn't dig it. They didn't read it. And this is very, very fascinating because 
New England's kind of history is one awash with witches and the supernatural and Puritanism and belief in devils and all sorts of stuff like that. It's like a deeply, it's like the, the religious part of early America, right? The rest of the country, Virginia, had its religions, but it wasn't the centerpiece of those societies the way New England was, right? And with New England's center being the religious, you get people who believe in devils and witches and demons and things like that active in the world. And that's why Cotton Mather gets mentioned here. And he actually, you know, talked about some of these supernatural things. And the response to whispers in New England was, this is just rubbish from, from crazy Puritan rubbish. It's the same kind of stuff. And we've forgotten it. And here's where the theme of forgetting fits into the story, I think, quite well, is essentially this whole region, Lovecraft is saying, has ignored its own past and, and, and kind of progressed to a certain stage where they've ignored their own legacy of witches, their own legacy of demons and devils and monsters and, and, and these supernatural forces and kind of replaced it with this crude irrationality. So when it appears, they just sort of toss it away and don't want to take it seriously, right? It's just a relic of the past, pretty much forgotten, right? And, uh, you know, I think that's, in that way, this story is also one of, the, of, of forgetting, uh, a whole region, a whole society, a whole culture forgetting. We've seen plenty of individuals want to forget, right? But it's a little bit rare at this point. It's going to become more common later in his work where it's more of a, a, to the general will of a society to forget the past. Certainly in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, that's going to be my major theme and my, my reading of that story. And then Carter tells our friend Manton that this is based on a true story, right? It's, it's really like, it's almost like when, you know, campfire, when you're telling the campfire scary story and you're like, oh, this is based on a true story, whatever. And, and to, to kind of raise the, the creepiness of, of, of the experience, right? That's what he does here. He says, oh, this is based on a true story. And he says he, he knows this because he found an old diary kept in the early 18th century in family papers, not a mile from where we're sitting. This is great stuff. This is really out of a Boy Scout campfire. Um, now, this seems to be Carter's own ancestors. The way he talks about it, he says, uh, you know, the reality of, uh, of the scars on my ancestors chest and back which the diary describes so this seems to um so carter was of new england and he left i guess to florida and came back because he does mention here that this is his antagonist's hometown not not his anymore i'm not sure i mean maybe there is a different way of reading this i don't know but his his legacy goes back to new england and he's one who remembers this right so we actually get a little bit on vernacular traditions here where he says that they're there are some people who kind of remember, right? So this is the contrast with the forgetting. You have the forgetters and you have the rememberers. And, and there are people who still remember those, those, those elements of the past. Quote, uh, they were whispered down for generations. Um, so that's, but the centerpiece of this story is then a boy in 1793 entering this house to examine, to kind of following up on this mystery. So we have a generational thing. We have Carter, who's writing the story and found this diary. We have a boy, Carter's own ancestor with the scars, who enters the house in 1793 and is able to carry by word of mouth certain truths. And then we have the original old diary from the early 18th century. So there's really a family continuity here.
Now, the sixth paragraph of the of the story is really, I think, beautiful and terrifying and important, uh, really, for so much of, of Lovecraft's work. Um, you know, first, the description of the thing that this person who entered this house saw is just an eldritch thing. It's, 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 a, it's a clear unnameable, right? Um, so sensitive students then shudder at the Puritan age in Massachusetts, right? And, and this, of course, ties to the forgetting, right? Most people in New England want to forget that and actively forget it, partially by not reading the supernatural horror that, that's written about it, but also just generally saying that's all Puritan madness and nonsense, right? But here's what Lovecraft writes, or, or Lovecraft through Carter. The witchcraft terror is a horrible ray of light on which was stewing in man's crushed brains. But even that is a trifle. There was no beauty, no freedom. We can see that from the architectural and household remains and the poisonous sermons in the crapped divines. So a couple of things here, like the witchcraft terror is being something that exposes a truth, a, a reality about New England, right? That's what it's this horrible ray of light. That's what he means by that. Um, and it's still in people's brains. The crushed brains, I think, is this forgotten uh, mentality, this mentality of forgetting. But you can't forget the witchcraft. You can't ever forget Salem. You can never forget the witchcraft terrors. Now, in Lovecraft's universe, Salem is just Arkham, and the witch the witch hunts are moved to Arkham. Um, but there's other we reasons we can't forget this. You know, it's the architecture, the graveyards that they're like literally sitting in, not drinking beer, uh, the sermons in those old books, the Cotton Mather sermons, the you know the old what the Puritans believe. That's all still in books, right? Quote, inside that rusted iron straitjacket lurked gibbering hideous perversion and diabolism. Here truly was the apotheosis of the unnameable. So, I mean, just, just such a great paragraph that I think is so key to not only this story, but I think broadly to how Lovecraft sees New England as this conflict between you know, remembrance which many people do, and it exists in the landscape, in the geography, in the architecture of the of the cities. And then this this immense effort by millions of people to suppress that and, and remove it from thought. So. so then we move on to get a closer look at Cotton Mather, who was mentioned before, his Magnalia Christi Americana. It's a multi-volume work. It was mentioned in the picture in the house. Uh, as one of the books on the shelf of, of that old man. Uh, he's here, he talks about specifically the sixth book, which you actually have to dig up to know about. I, I, I don't know if his readers, most readers would know this or bother to look it up, but uh, Klinger did, and we got the notes on this. It's called The Remarkables of the Divine, of Divine Providence Among the People of New England. And there's a particular chapter called The Wonders of the Spirit World. So this apparently is a real thing, which... Uh, you know, me and due diligence to look it up. One day I am going to try to do this. I don't know for this podcast, but certainly when I want to write on, you know, this stuff out into kind of a manuscript, I do want to look at some of these works that were influencing Lovecraft. And, and this seems to be one of them. But Carter's point about Mather is that he also accepts the unnameable, right? That he talks about this beast, you know, he tries to describe it a little bit, right? Less than a man, a blemished eye, screaming drunken wretch that they hang for having such an eye. That's that's more like a witchcraft thing. But he, he can't tell it. He says it's badly told. He can only sort of hint at what comes after a certain point in the narration. There's a point where human capacity to describe, even for someone as talented 
a writer as Cotton Mather, just their, their, their abilities were limited by the nature of the thing. So this is proof for Carter of the reality of the unnameable. Now, Carter or Mather is not the only one who remembers this. Quote, others knew but did not dare to tell. There's no public hint of why they whispered out the lock on the door in the attic house in the houses of the childish, broken, embittered old man who had put up the blank slab slate by the avoided grave. Although one may trace enough evasive legends to curdle the thinnest blood. So again, we have sort of vernacular traditions that are, are, are carrying on the work of remembering when the public as a whole has worked to forget it. So then we have the memories, the, these, these traditions that are carrying on the truth, the reality that's been forgotten. One is the diary itself that he found, right, with all its hushed innuendos and furtive tales of things. We have his own ancestor who was caught on a dark valley road and was left with these scars. And we get the description of the scars that were mentioned earlier in the tale. The marks of horns on his chest, ape-like claws, um, and specifically split hooves, right? So split hooves are, of course, the goat, the devil, right? This is going to be a theme later on when the same thing happens to our characters. They get this, uh, they have the, the split hooves on them, and people say, well, it's just like a mad bull and run you over or something. Well, bulls don't have the split hooves, right? So it's a very specific, you know, he's specifically pointing out the, the split hooves here. But it's convenient for forgetting when you say, well, it's a hoof, right? It's close enough. Right? We can't really prove it's not a, it wasn't a bull. So let's just say that's what it is, right? That's what we'll write in our medical report. That's what we'll file away and we'll forget that there's anything weird going on here, right? It's like, we'll, like the X-Files, right? We'll just throw it away into the X-Files and, and forget about it. And there's other tales here too, like in 1710, the old man who lives, who lives in this house. Um, this child, this broken old man was buried in a crypt behind his own house. Right. But they never unlock the attic door. They left. They just abandoned the house. Right. So the, the existence of the house itself is an act of of partial forgetting. Right. They don't tear down the house like like the police in Innsmouth who destroy the whole town. But here they just sort of forget. They, they just lock up the building and, and ignore it. Now, people still see things in the house when noises came from it. They whispered and shivered and hoped that the lock on the attic was strong. Then they stopped hoping when the horror occurred at the parsonage, leaving out a soul alive or in one piece. With the years, the legends take on a special character. I suppose the thing, if it was a living thing, must have died. The memory had lingered hideously, all the more hideous because it was so secret. So Manton's interest is piqued is by this um, by this story, and he's, he's curious. So there's kind of a shift a little bit in Manton's perspective. He, he's kind of buying that there might be something here. Um, and then he tells a little bit more about the boy of 1793. This is apparently the focus of the story that Carter wrote, the attic window story, right? Which is based on this real story. And so the boy goes to this shunned house. We're going to see a shunned house again shortly in a story coming up in a, in a couple weeks. Um, but he, he was curious in this because he believed these latent images of people who once sat there. So he goes to look at it. And so that's the that's this other story, the one that that um, Carter's drawing from. So we have the ancestor, we got the diary, you know, the ancestor with the with the claw marks. We got the boy, and then we have Carter himself. So we got like three generations with some kind of connection to this this house. 
So although Manton's a little bit interested in this <clears throat> and opening it up a little bit, he kind of falls back very quickly to the impossibility of the unnameable. It's like, well, maybe there's something there, you know, but it can't be unnameable. So it's still like, it has to be scientifically describable. And Carter's like, okay, okay. And then he says, well, there's a lot more stories out here. It's not just the, the diary. There's other things we can draw from to kind of flesh out this story. You know, we can sort of investigate more. And what's fascinating about this is like Carter has much more information. He's got all the data. He's got all the information and traditions. And he comes to the conclusion on the unnameable. He's being the better scientist in a way. Um, but Banton is just saying, well, he, he has the more scientific outlook, but this doesn't lead him to actually investigate or interrogate. Carter did all the legwork of the investigation, including digging up all these local traditions. I don't need to repeat my view on the local traditions, I don't think. Um, and he, he talks about some other things, you know, fears held on by the, quote, aged natives. Um, however, it's in the last two generations that these legends have sort of started to fade away. So young people don't carry them on. It's still, it's still older people who remember them, but the young people have, have forgotten it. And then he just concludes, based on everything I've seen and read about and talked about, right, no one's been able to describe this thing, right? And so it's ultimately undescribable. It's, it's, it's clearly, objectively, and unnameable. If, if that many people can know about it and talk about it and have some sort of memory of it, despite the efforts of recent generations to forget, how, what, how is it not an unnameable? It has to be. So he kind of comes to a kind of a scientific conclusion about the unnameability of, of this creature. So now it gets really late. A bat flies by. It's totally dark there. And, and the Manton says, well, is this house still around, right? Because Carter never really said it's that dark house that's right, that, that's right there. <laughs> and we're, not, we're sitting right next to it, right? So we're, we're back to the Boy Scout campfire scene right where you know it's like it's a true story it happened right around here right but he saves that happened right here to, to the end to the punchline of, of the story so he says like is the story still around and he's like yeah it's, it's the one that's right next to us you've seen it right so now Manton says okay did you ever investigate this and it seems Carter had actually investigated the house itself and he found bones under the eaves of the of the house so he didn't apparently go into the attic but he found these bones and he buried them in, in, in a tomb. He kind of tried to give them as much as possible a proper burial, at least hide them away. Carter's involved in a little bit active forgetting there by kind of covering up the bones, but at least he still writes about them and, and talks about them here. And this, the description of the skull here is four inch horns, but with a human face and jaw. Other elements of the house that Carter identified is that all the windows were, were, take, were broken down and not repaired. Obviously, the house is being shunned, so there's not going to be anyone who has the interest or willingness to approach the house. Um, those old windows hadn't been out of use for a long time. There's not even the, the glass that could have fit that for a long time. So doesn't know if the boy broke it or, or it was broken before or whatever. And then Manton says, well, OK, let's, let's go to the house. Let's, let's see the house. Right. And kind of let's test the theory. Um, and Carter again says, you did see it. It was right there. And now it's dark. And, and that's not really what Manton meant. Man Manton meant like, let's actually go there just like you did. Let's go check it out. Now, they never actually get to go there. 
uh, I guess it's not really relevant to the story um, because something comes to them. They hear a creaking sound, uh, knowing that the lattice windows, which is like the windows, the glass is gone on them, but the lattice windows, I guess, is still open. Um, they, they hear something from the house. And then there's, I'll just read the paragraph. This is what happens to them. Then came a noxious rush of noise and frigid air. From that, the same dreaded direction, followed by a piercing shriek just beyond me on that shocking rift tomb of man and monster. In another instance, I was knocked from my gruesome bench by the devilish threshing of some unseen entity of titanic size but undetermined nature. Knocked sprawling on the root-clutched mold of the abhorrent graveyard, while from the tomb came such a styled uproar of gasping and whirling that my fancy peopled the rayless gloom with miltonic legions of misshapen damned. There was a vortex of withering ice-cold wind and then a rattle of loose bricks and plaster, but I had mercifully fainted before I could learn what it meant. So he faints. Now, Manton is attacked, and he just faints because they both wake up around the same time at uh, St. Mary's Hospital of, of Arkham, I guess. I, I guess that's the, that's the hospital in Arkham, St. Mary's. Um, and they wake up at the same time, and even though, even though he just faints, Manton was attacked. The explanation is that Manton's a little more sturdy, right? So they can wake up at the same time for convenience, even though he was like physically assaulted. Um, and then there's all these attendants around them, you know, investigating sort of what happened. They, their body was found at, at some, their bodies were found at some point, and they were taken to the hospital. And there was a little bit of an investigation about about what had happened to them, mostly because Manton had quote two malignant wounds on his chest, and some less severe cuts or gougings in the back. And the the police explanation just is that they were victims of a bull, right? Although it. First of all, obviously, if there's the cleft hoof scarring, just like Carter's own ancestor had, it, it, was, one, it was one of these demon things, right? It's quite large, but uh, the horns, the horned skull, he doesn't describe as huge. He describes it as a monstrosity, but it's horns with a face and jaw, something like yours and mine. But anyways, it, it seems it's big. And it trampled on him. I don't know why this thing can't kill people. If it's so bad, if it's so nasty, it's pretty bad at killing people. Um, but anyways. Then Carter says, okay, what was it? Because he fainted. Carter fainted. Manton maybe saw it. And Manton did. And he says, you know, was it a thing? And Manton sort of says, no, it wasn't that way at all. It was everywhere. A gelatin, a slime that had its shape, a thousand shapes of horror beyond all memory. There were eyes and a blemish. So the blemish eye, which was described before. It was the pit, the maelstrom, the ultimate abomination. Carter, it was the unnameable. And that's how the story ends with, uh, with him finally confessing the unnameable. Having seen something, witnessed something that is beyond the capacity of human beings to explain. So I think the story on one level works just as a great dissertation, a discussion of the philosophy behind horror literature. And, and you know, do you go for, as King said, the gross out or the terror or do you horrify? It's a great section of Dance Macabre. If you haven't read that, you might want to check it out where he says, like, he does all three. He wants to terrify. If he can, he horrifies. If he can't horrify, he, he does the gross out. And he says, I'm not proud of that. And so... It's a rather humorous approach to it, but it's true, you know, he does all three, right? And, and Lovecraft even is able to do all three. 
in, in various ways. And I, I think his description of it is quite good. Um, but, you know, the idea of terror being somehow associated with that unnameable is, is I think, key to that. And, and of course, that's Lovecraft's point in supernatural horror and literature, and that only some of us sufficiently sensitive can really appreciate it and, and, and touch it. The rest of us are maybe too, too rationalized, too, too logical. And I think that's one way to read the story, and that's basically Lovecraft's intent. But I, I think there's another important level to this story that we really have to pay attention to, and that is remembering and forgetting. I, I keep repeating that theme in this podcast because I do think it's key. It's key to how we talk about even race in Lovecraft because, and, and this is all going to come together, trust me, when we get to the case of Charles Dexter Ward, where the narratives of racial oppression and slavery and, 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 and violence against a whole race of people to build the country is it's, is itself tied directly to the theme of forgetting. Um, but that's there. But forgetting is never absolute. It never is total, right? It's, there's always going to be traditions that carry it on. Local legends, local beliefs, whether it's a diary or something, that, that really can't be totally suppressed. As much as Lovecraft might be on the side of forgetting, I think he often is. In this story, Carter, being the Lovecraft fill-in, is one, the one engaged in the memory, the remembering, right? So I think Lovecraft's a bit two-minded about this. He's not totally one or the other, but certainly it's more on the side, I think, forgetting, especially towards the end of his career. But at various times, he does say, like, you kind of do have to dig in a little bit and, and, and look at it a little bit, a little bit more and, and, and appreciate that history, right? Because if he truly was a 100% a forgetter, he would not write. He wouldn't write these stories. He wouldn't keep picking at the scab of the witch trials and, and the Puritans and, and the kind of stuff he does in this story and other stories. So anyways, that's, that's it. That's it for now. Those are my thoughts on The Unnameable. Um, I think it's a great story. Um, the only problem with the story I really have is that this monster can't seem to kill people very well. And if it's so horrible, why doesn't it kill people more often? Um, and also, why does it leave the house at that point? You know, are these the first people ever to hang out in the graveyard after night, after dark? Maybe the local people, you know, they stay away. But Manton didn't know to stay away. I don't know why. If you can leave the house and go after people, why doesn't do it more often? Um, I don't know. Well, that's just uh, some questions I have, but it doesn't really matter for, for the story to work. Um, because it is sort of meta. It's really much a meta story. But let me know your own thoughts about it. Leave me a, send me an email or leave a comment below. Send me a tweet. Whatever you want to do. I'll, I'll appreciate hearing from you. So we have five more stories to get at before we, we move on to the revisions. So I think it's The Hound, The Festival, The Lurking Fear, Rats on the Wall, and The Shunned House. So there's some long ones in there. Uh, but once we're done those five stories, we're going to shift over to the, the revisions that Lovecraft wrote up to 1924, including The Great Under the Pyramids. And I'll do those. I might have, I might go through them a little bit more quickly than I do some of these stories. I'm not sure. I haven't really reread them yet, um, but that's coming up. But next, next is The Hound, a story I rather like. I, I, I appreciate the story. It's not one of his greats, but it's got some great moments and some great imagery, some great relics, stuff. I love the stuff in The, in the Hound. So I look forward to talking about that with you next time, and I will see you then. Bye-bye.